Sorry, let me put my specs on. I, I put it on the screen too, if that's easier to read. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is a really good question. What about Cro-Magnum, Neanderthal, and other early humans? How does the creation account mesh with these documented species? So this is a question that, um, that I was asked a couple days ago and uh, did some research. I'm, I've got, I'm pretty hot on this particular speaker up here. Is it possible to just turn this one down? If not, I can just unplug it. I don't want to be squealing on you guys. <laughs> so I, I did some research, and, uh, and I think this one's going to be an interesting subject, but I'm going to have to refer you to some uh, experts on, on some of this because I'm not a scientist. It's not, a, it's not an expertise that I have, but I think I have enough uh, resources to at least provide some context. So just so you know, this is something that, uh, that Brent asked me a few minutes ago. What is Cro-Magnon? And, and so Cro-Magnon Man is a guy that somebody dug up a, a while back, and uh, they did some testing on him, and they decided that, that the, the Cro-Magnon was kind of this whole grouping of proto-humans that um, it lived some 40 or 70,000 years ago. And they came from um, Africa into Europe maybe 28,000 years ago. And uh, so, you know, they, they, they did some testing on these guys. And there's this other one, Neanderthal. That one's like 100,000 years old, they say. Um, so they just, they have these dates and these assumptions about these people. And, and uh, here's the way that it kind of goes. The evolutionary claim is that since features in some of these proto-human skeletons are dr apparently dramatically different than a normal human skeleton, um, and, and since the DNA is just a little bit different, um, and since they were found in a context that would make them appear to be quite old, then these must be previous species in the process of adaptation in the evolutionary process. So that's the kind of evolutionary claim. And uh, these assumptions are only really possible um, when you, well, when you think about this first assumption, the first assumption being that, that the features of humans are, are different, and so therefore it must be a different species. You just have to look around at people today, and I mean, just look to your left and your right. Um, how closely do you resemble everybody else here in the room? We, we have differences between us, right? Um, the, the noses, the foreheads, the, you know, you might have somebody with a, a forehead that's a little bit farther back and some with foreheads that are more protruding, some with longer noses and shorter noses, some with chins that kind of stick out and some that don't even have chins. And, you know, people are just all kinds of different, right? And when you think about it, there's just, there's really no normal, and unfortunately, we look at each other and we think, um, well, that person looks like me. They must be normal. And that's just irrational. <laughs> because there's how many billion people in the world? 7.6 billion people. Do you expect everybody to look like you? No. And what about DNA? Um, if DNA is a little bit different, does that make it a different species? Well, let me ask you this. Um, is, a, is, is a 
toy poodle and a um, Great Dane in the same species? Wildly, yes. The one is not a rat and the other is not a horse. They are both dogs. And so with, when you have a great amount of variation in your DNA, it is, it's expressed in different features, and, and that's not a problem, and that doesn't mean you're part of a different species. So what's, what's happening here is we dig up a bone from some skeleton that looks a little bit different or has a little bit different DNA, and looks like it's from a certain era because of the place that they find it in or the area of, of um, soil that it's in or whatever. And uh, because we're thinking that things have evolved over millions of years, then we come to conclusions about what that uh, skeleton might have been. So um, I would say uh, we need to look specifically at the dating methods. Um, and, and there's a couple of things about the dating methods that are important for us to recognize. Um, one of them, the, the major form of dating when we look at things like um, fossils and, and, and rocks and whatnot is what's called radiometric or radiocarbon dating. And radiometric dating, um, a lot of people think it's a sure thing. You know, they, they, they give it a date and that's when it was. You know, 100,000 years ago, that, that's accurate. Except even the people that do the dating rely on multiple methods of dating, and it's only when they can cross over that they give you an assumption date. And, and that assumed date is plus or minus about 35% is what they give it, kind of a range of about 35%. So they don't even trust the dates that, that they're, they're coming up with. Um, and one of the things that, um, and, and there's a lot of little a lot of little details in here we're not going to get into. Like there's, there's um, argon-argon dating and there's all kinds of different dating methods. But most of these methods, um, radiometric dating requires that the uh, rock or the, the mineral that the, the um, thing is in um, have some kind of um, decay, right? It's a radioactive mineral, radioactive rock. And if it's not radioactive, then you're not going to find any method in order to date that thing. So what, like argon-argon is a really effective dating method, um, but it requires that it, it, whatever you found was in a volcanic ash or volcanic rock. Um, and like uh, they were pretty accurate when they dated the volcanic rock around Mount Vesuvius. They dated it to 79 AD. It, it works pretty well. We can actually, we know when that event was, and we can take the argon-argon radiometric dating method, and we can compare it with history, and we can say, yeah, that's accurate. But the problem is it's very, very limited. And um, any kind of radiometric dating relies on three assumptions. And the first is that... Um, the original number of unstable atoms is known. Were you there when the thing was created, you know, thrown out of the rock, for example? And, and did you get a, a test of the uh, number of radioactive atoms that were there at the time? And the answer is, unequivocally, no, you didn't. <laughs> so if you had an understanding of what was there to begin with, then you would know absolutely um, what the difference is between what we have today and what was there at the beginning. We don't have that, and so we have to make a, an informed guess, um, which isn't necessarily a bad guess. But 
we have to make an informed guess about how many atoms were there to begin with. Um, The second assumption is that the rate of decay has been constant. Um, And this idea of constancy through time is a really important one. If nothing happened to change things, then with our informed guess about how many um, atoms were there at the beginning, we can estimate, based on the rate of decay that we see today, how long it's taken us um, from the time that that thing began. And, and it's an estimate with, you know, 35% plus or minus error rate, but it's still a decent estimate of where, uh, where that thing was. The problem is there are all kinds of things that could insert change in that rate of decay, either speeding it up or slowing it down. And uh, so if, if there's an assumption that there has been no catastrophic things that have happened, then no problem, right? That rate of decay is pretty constant. But what if there's something catastrophic, like a worldwide flood where everything's breaking up and busting up from underneath the surface and falling from the sky and lots and lots of cataclysmic changes are happening? That changes the rate of decay. And there's been some studies that have been done um, to demonstrate that the rate of decay can be impacted by those kinds of events. So first assumption that we understand how many atoms were there to begin with. The second assumption is that we um, have a constant rate of decay. And the third assumption is that um, daughter atoms were all produced by radioactive decay. All right, so uh, I'm going to read this one. Scientists assume that no outside forces, such as flowing groundwater, contaminated the sample. In other words, like what we see here is, is um, all from the original creation of this, of this rock. And, and uh, it, nothing's been added or changed. Think about it like, uh, think about it like um, one of those um, time things. What are they called? Hourglass, thank you. Um, so on the top, you have these, these grains of sand. Um, you've got the little hole, and then you've got the place that they're piling up underneath. And uh, if we know how many grains of sand there was at the beginning and, and how many go through in any given rate of, uh, of time, then, then we can measure how much time has elapsed, right? As long as nobody tilted it on its side for a while, right? As long as nobody added new grains of sand in there, and as long as we know how many sand, grains of sand were there at the beginning, then we can tell how much time has elapsed. Does that make sense? That's radiometric dating, and we don't know if somebody turned it on its side or dumped extra stuff in, or made the hole bigger. (laughs) Like, we don't know any of those things. And so radiometric dating is basically a big assumption. And, well, we can't just say, sure, that's accurate. We have to look at those details and say, do we know for certain that this is accurate? And I would like to suggest the only evidence that we can have, or the only, let me say, observation that we have of what has happened through history um, is, is the God who made things and observed them happening and revealed it to us in His Word. Scientists, do our, they, we do our best to look back in time. 
but, but we don't have a time machine. We can't go back to when it started to, to, to do the experiments and test things. So we just make assumptions based on our preconceived ideas. And if we're starting with evolution, our assumptions are going to end in evolution. So what I'd like to suggest is these, uh, these, these variety of humanoids, <laughs> proto-humans, whether it's Neanderthal or, or um, Cro-Magnon or anything like that, um, they're people just like us. And what they've observed about the places where they find these things is that there are tools, you know, like you and I use tools, and that there are relationships and families, like you and I have relationships and families. We find that they gather, like you and I gather, um, and we find that uh, they have DNA that's remarkably similar to ours. So, what I'm led to conclude is that the same God that made me made them, and they just lived a long time ago. And as far as the dating goes, the Bible tells me that God created, and we can trace uh, history back to about 4,000 years ago where there was a flood, and the Bible says that the whole world was impacted by a cataclysmic event that kind of adjusted things a bit in the, in the timing. So when I look at all the dates, I just do a, I just do a correction for creation account, and, and it works fine. These are people who lived um, and died more than likely in the three to 4,000 year time frame ago. And they were people that migrated. If you read the story in Genesis, you find that there was a tower and people, when God said, fill the earth, the people were like, no, we don't want to fill the earth. We want to sit here. And so God confused their languages and, uh, and people started spreading out across the earth. So when, when they look and they see the, the traces of people uh, migrating from Africa or from Arabia. Um, I just look at the, cre the creation account in Genesis and, and the flood and the story of the Tower of Babel and, and the spreading of the people, and I just say, yeah, right there, that's, the Bible said that was going to happen, and sure enough, it, it did. We can see it, we can trace it in the bones. So in, in my book, Cro-Magnum, Neanderthal, it just puts a stamp of approval on what the Bible says. Yeah, thank you for the question. Thank you. All right, so tonight we're, we get to study A River Runs Through It. And um, this is the story of paradise, from paradise lost to paradise found. Now, tomorrow we're going to study um, uh, a Revelation 13, kind of a big subject when it comes to Bible prophecy. We're looking at the mark, not the mark, but the beast of Revelation chapter 13. And remember, we're 12, 13, and 14. These are kind of the pinnacle, the, the, the center of Revelation. And so when we're looking at 13, we're looking at some big stuff. Revelation 12, that was the, the big battle in the universe. Revelation 14, this is God's response. And Revelation 12 is the dragon's response. And so we're going to look at that tomorrow night. On Friday night, we're going to talk about death. And we're going to find that it's actually a key, um, a key aspect of end-time prophecy. And, and when we look at this, um, we have to realize that you and I are, are all going to die if Jesus doesn't come first. And, and everybody who's lived before us has died. And so this is kind of a big subject. It affects every single one of us. And what happens? What happens when you die? And I think you'll be 
pleased to know the Bible has a lot of information about that, and we're going to get to explore what the Bible says. And there's some pretty clear details about it. And then on Saturday, we're going to add a, an 11 o'clock um, uh, uh, message. We're, we're kind of in the last half, and we've got a couple extras I want to throw in. So 11 o'clock on Saturday, right here, Secrets to Answered Prayer. And uh, we, we're going to study something that's a key to getting all of your prayers answered. And, and I'm not joking about that. It's not a gimmick. Uh, Saturday night, God's strange act. We're going to look at the subject of hell. And how does this line up with a God of love, a God that pursues us, a God that died for us? How does that God, um, well, according to modern Christianity, um, how does that God torture us forever and ever and ever if we don't accept Him? So we're going to explore that subject on Saturday night. And then on Sunday night, we get to look at the, the thousand years in Revelation 20, uh, 20 and 21. What is, what's going on in heaven? What's happening on earth? The Bible actually tells us. It gives us some details so we can know what that thousand years is all about. And we'll continue from there. But, um, and just so you know, we finish on May 29. So not quite two weeks away, and we're going to be all the way through Revelation, and, and hopefully you'll be able to walk away from here and say, I understand that now. <laughs> That's the goal. If, you're, if you don't, then uh, talk to me, and we'll, I'll, I'll uh, see what I can do, because uh, th- that was my promise at the beginning, is that I would help you understand it for yourself. So hopefully we'll get there. So tonight, we're kind of relax a tiny bit from the heavy prophecy stuff, and we're going to look at um, another theme, and this is a subject that a lot of people, I think, trivialize. Like, they, it's not that big of a deal in many minds, and I think the Bible, it points to something a little more significant. The Bible says this is actually a really big deal. And I want to make sure that, uh, I want to make sure this is something that's relevant for you and, and also something that, uh, that, that you can dig into from the Bible. We want to get our answers from the Bible. So let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, as we open your word, I just pray that you would bless, uh, let your truth be proclaimed. Please uh, anoint my lips with your Holy Spirit. Forgive me for anything that would um, prevent me from communicating your word um, and glorifying you tonight. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been starting most of the nights in Revelation, and we'll, we'll see something in Revelation, and then we'll go back throughout the Bible and explore, like, what does that mean, and, and find some answers. But tonight, um, we're going to go and we're going to start in the book of Genesis. And you'll find that a lot of the things that we see in Revelation are from the rest of the, the Old Testament, like two-thirds of it. I think we've, we've looked at that before. Um, you might remember that in, in the third night, we studied um, the subject of Armageddon, and we found that Daniel 5 actually helps us understand what's happening in Revelation 16. And um, tomorrow night, you'll find that Daniel 7 is a key to unlocking Revelation 13. Uh, we looked at the story of Elijah, and uh, remember that story in the book of First Kings has Elijah and this guy named Ahab, and Ahab marries uh, a priestess from Baal, and he starts Israel down this road of worshiping Baal, and so then there's this... Uh, this moment where Elijah appears to the king and says, there's not going to be any rain until I say so. And for three and a half years, Elijah hides from Ahab and this, this wicked queen. 
And then if you look in Revelation 12, you'll find there's a woman. And that woman is persecuted by the dragon and has to flee to the wilderness like Elijah did. And, he, and that woman hides for three and a half years. So there's all kinds of interesting comparisons. Um, we, we also pointed out that the Ten Commandments are a big key. Ecclesiastes 12 ties the Ten Commandments directly to judgment. And of course, in Revelation 14, we find the, the Father's name, the, the character of God imprinted in the foreheads of the, the 144,000 there in Revelation 14. And it says that they, they are those who keep the commandments of God. We looked at the book of Exodus, and we found that that's an important key in understanding Revelation. Um, you have the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness and then finally coming to the promised land in, in Exodus. And in Revelation 15, um, you've got these uh, people that have been going through the land, heading towards the promised land, the heavenly promised land. And in, in Revelation 15, it says that they sang the song of Moses and the Lamb. And then we found that the sanctuary is another key to understanding this prophecy stuff. And it's everywhere. Daniel has sanctuary themes all through it. Revelation has sanctuary themes all through it. Um, so you have to read the whole Bible. If you want to understand prophecy, you need to look at the big picture throughout the rest of the Bible. So today we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. Right, actually, right after the place that we left off um, on Sunday night. So it says that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now notice this. The Bible makes it pretty clear. God made. They didn't, people didn't crawl up out of the mud. They didn't, they didn't uh, descend along with apes from some, um, you know, long time ago thing. <laughs> it wasn't an ape or a human, you know. They, they didn't do that. God says, or the Bible says that God made. No single-celled organism beginning for us. We have a creator, a designer, somebody who loves us and created us with intention. He says that you and I are special. He wants relationship with us. It's a, it's a big deal. So God made us, and then it says, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also planted in the midst of garden. Now notice this, God makes a garden. He creates the whole world. We don't really know what it looks like. Maybe there's little things of grass growing up here and, and trees starting there. Uh, maybe they just popped out all mature and everything. I don't know, but, but it's like right here in this moment in Genesis 2, we see God designing something. He's making a home for Adam and Eve. So he makes them out of the dust, he breathes into them life, and then he designs this special oasis, this garden, Eden. And, and then it says this, the tree of knowledge, um, the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then it says, now a river went out of, of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. I mean, God thinks about everything. He's got trees for food. He's got beautiful, wonderful variety of things that are there. Everything that would delight your eyes and your, your tastes and your senses, God's provided that. Beautiful smelling flowers and vines and everything that you can imagine. And he's even provided water. A river's flowing through Eden to water Eden, and it splits into four other rivers to, to water the rest of the world. 
And you know, God, he, he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and, and the, the word is to fill the earth. Um, but, but there's something about it. It's not just like to have babies and, and populate the earth. It's more like to make more gardens like this. That's kind of what God is saying. Make, make more homes like this. And, and so God makes the first example of what Adam and Eve are supposed to be doing. In the beginning, God made a perfect home. And a river ran through that home. Now, let's just go from there and forget for just a minute the whole sin thing and the mess up that they did. And, and let's jump to the very end, Revelation chapter 22. And we're going to find some, a picture that's kind of similar in many ways. Revelation 22, the first verse says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river, the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Do you realize what this means? It means that even though Adam and Eve sinned, God's going to bring us back to the design that he had created for us in the beginning. He designed us for good things. He never designed us for the brokenness that we experience in our life today. He designed us to, to live forever. And, and so there's a plan that God has to bring us back into the place that he had designed for us to begin with, a Garden of Eden home. It starts with a river and it ends with a river. It starts with a curse falling on the whole human race because we turned our backs on God, but it, 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 ends, it ends with this. It says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. No more meaninglessness, no more thankless work, no more disease, no more suffering, no more death. God says, all of that will be a thing of the past. And then it says, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. You and I are going to see the face of God. And you see the name on their foreheads? That, that forehead thing and the God's name is coming up again. God is, he's going to write his, his name on our minds. His character will be imprinted on our hearts. There are two rivers in the Bible, one in Genesis, and then you can find it also in Revelation, if you're studying Ezekiel, you'll find it in there too. Um, but same, same story, the, uh, the, the heavenly kind of uh, Eden. And do you know what, what ties these two rivers together? What makes it possible that we could go from losing one to gaining the other? It's the cross. Just let it sink in for a minute. You and I don't deserve it. We don't deserve the beauty of that original Eden. But God wins everything back for us at the cross. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they were removed from the garden. And, and then God promised to send his seed, the seed of the woman, his son, Jesus Christ, and he would crush the head of the serpent and win eternity back for the human race. And in the book of, the, of Revelation, the slain lamb that leads us into paradise. Um, the Bible calls him another Adam. He's the second Adam, and he's, he's done what Adam failed to do. He's lived a life of loyalty and honor to God, and he's lived it as one of us. And through his death and his life, 
he leads us back into that paradise home that God had originally designed for us. From between paradise lost and paradise restored, you'll find this cross of Jesus. And that cross says that you and I can start again. Let me ask you, are are there things in your life that you regret? In high school, um, regrettably, I had a friend who convinced me to grow my hair. And, and my hair, if you let it grow, um, gets wavy and, and, and just kind of puffs out. And so for a, an unfortunate period of time, longer than I wish, in high school, I had an afro. That, that's a, a period of time I regret. And most of you who have lived through the 80s, um, or at least were young in the 80s, Um, probably have a hairstyle or two that you regret too. (laughs) Uh, And and then there's that time in college where there was this this pretty young girl that I asked to a a social event. And and you know what she said to me? She said, let me check with my fiance. (laughs) I didn't know she was dating, much less engaged. I wouldn't have asked her if I'd known. Um, But yeah, that was was, uh, not a comfortable moment for me. Have you ever wanted to rewind the tape? I mean, maybe something simple and, 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 and silly like I just shared, or maybe something more significant. Do you ever wish that you could go back and just scrub that part of your life out? Broken relationships, broken trust, broken home, things you just can't fix. Tonight, the Bible says that you can start again. And you might say, but you don't have any idea what I've done. Yeah, that's true. But it doesn't matter what you've done because God says you can start over. And the Bible literally says, this is God. He says, is my hand shortened that it cannot save? Do you think God's hand is short? Do you think He's uh, incapable of doing a new thing in your life? I mean, God's the creator of the universe. Have you looked out there lately? It's bigger than you. And he says, you can start over. The only problem that most people have is believing that God really means it. And we look at what God says, and we look at this experience of salvation, and we say, that sounds like a fairy tale to me. You ever watched a fairy tale? You know, Disney movie? All the princesses and stuff that they do? Every one of them is a fairy tale, and, and uh, some of them are questionable when it comes to teaching about relationships, but um, when you look at those stories, they're, they're like supposed to be some ideal thing. And we look at it, and we smile, and we say, that's not real. But when we look at the story that Jesus tells, and the river that He promises us, and the beautiful home that He wants to make for us, that He is making for us, we, we're, we could be tempted to look at that and say, yeah, that sounds like a Disney fairy tale. That's not real. And so because we have that uh, tendency um, to, to maybe go to that, oh, fairy tale idea, God has given us something that, that's concrete, something that grounds our future in the present. Take a careful look at the first thing that Jesus did with his public ministry. He actually steps into a river. And, and in spite of the fact that he's sinless, he's the son of God, he was baptized. 
Now, you might be asking, what in the world does baptism have to do with the subject of prophecy? And more than you might expect, it's a symbol, a a token. And we've talked about a lot of symbols. Uh, When we've looked at prophecy, there's symbols all over the place. And does God care about the symbols that he tells us? Are they insignificant to him, or does he care about the details of those symbols? I think he cares. Um, But interesting, when it comes to the subject of baptism, um, the Bible makes it pretty clear, like uh, passages like Mark 16 and Matthew 28, that um, Christian baptism is absolutely critical. It's part of this experience with Christ. It's not an optional thing. Now, Jesus he did something, and we're going to look at why in, in a minute. Um, I say it's not an optional thing, but let's, we'll, we'll find out what Jesus does. Um, because some people, it's not even possible for them to be baptized, like the man on the cross. So we'll look, we'll look at that in a minute. But when, Christian get, when Christians get to be- together to study baptism or to talk about baptism, the various ideas about baptism are quite interesting. Who should get baptized? When should they be baptized? What leads up to baptism? What does baptism look like? Everything is up for debate, it seems like. And unfortunately, Christians can be pretty good at arguing. You ever heard of the two Christian businessmen that went into the restaurant for lunch one day? The one man says to the other, I'm a better Christian than you. And the other one says, you're not, you're a horrible Christian. I bet you 10 bucks you don't even know one of the Ten Commandments. Now, they shouldn't be betting at all, um, but they shouldn't be arguing either. So the other guy says, you're on, and uh, he says, I do know the Ten Commandments. And he's, he fell silent for just a, a moment and thought, and, and finally he says, uh, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. The... Uh, the other man was absolutely astonished. I didn't think you could do it. Here's your 10 bucks, he says. (laughs) The truth is when Christians start to argue, more than likely they're both wrong. What you and I think never matters. Just let that sink in. That's something that should humble us. What you and I think doesn't matter. What matters is what God thinks. He's the one revealing himself to us. For us to be like arguing about what we think about God is kind of pointless. Let's ask God what he thinks about himself and what he wants to tell us about himself. That's going to help us a lot more. And, and what we can do is we can go to God's word and find out what God says about himself. That's really the, the way to go. Um, and usually if you read the whole book, the answers become clear. It's not it's not an ambiguous thing. God actually does tell us what he, he wants us to know about himself. And, and keep in mind, when you think about the Bible, some people think that, that uh, because they hear so many different tunes coming out of Christianity, that the Bible is just like an old fiddle that you can play any tune on you want. But that's not how the Bible works. The Bible actually has a message it wants to share. And what, ne- what we need to do is, is, is cut out our preconceived ideas just kind of put our ideas on, on the, the couch beside us and, and then let the Holy Spirit guide us. And the Bible says, Jesus says, that he'll send us the Holy Spirit. That's a promise. When we ask, he'll give us the Holy Spirit. And two, that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. But we have to put our preconceived ideas on the couch and let them just sit there while the Holy Spirit teaches us new things. So, Let's do that now. What does the Bible, what does Jesus teach us about baptism? 
Well, let's start by looking at Jesus' story. Um, When Jesus started his ministry, the first thing he does is he walks into this river, the Jordan River, in Matthew chapter 3. And starting in verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? I don't know if you can imagine that experience. John is not a perfect guy, but he knows who Jesus is. He knows Jesus is God. He knows he's the Messiah, and he feels ashamed. How could I baptize you? Uh, You should be baptizing me. And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. Notice what Jesus is saying. Baptism is the right thing to do. It's a righteous thing to do. So then why was Jesus baptized? He didn't need to to be more righteous, right? He, He didn't need to be baptized for that reason. So there's two reasons that I'd like to suggest The one is because of that man on the cross. Jesus knows there's going to be more than one of those. And so Jesus is baptized on behalf of those who can't be. But but also, and probably most important, is that Jesus is baptized as an example for you and me. He doesn't need to be, but his life is an example for us. And and, uh, he says that we should follow in his footsteps. And if that's a footstep of Jesus, then if you want to follow the lamb wherever he goes, then you should go into the river too. Now, pay careful attention to what happens next. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased." I mean, this is a big moment. The Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus are all present right there at the baptism. It's the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of his work of drawing all men unto himself. That was, that's what's happening. And, and keep in mind that this isn't just um, at a random point in time. This was prophesied in Daniel 9. 483 years earlier in 457 BC, the Israelites had given, been given that decree to, to go back into Jerusalem. And it's from that point on that they started counting, and that clock was counting down the years until 483 years later, Jesus would come. And this is that moment, that baptism of Jesus moment. In the Bible, baptism is an important symbol. And not just an optional activity, it's a believer's first act of public witness. And baptism, it's designed to teach something. It's designed to teach us something, but it's also designed to teach others something when we, when we participate in that act. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So baptism is this symbol, a symbol of dying with Christ, being buried with him, and then being raised back to life. 
Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected, and he says that we all need to have that same experience with him. It, it tells the story of your belief. It says when, when, you, when you do this public thing, you're telling everybody, look what I'm, what's happening to me. That was my old life, but I'm dead now, and I have been raised to a new life in Jesus Christ. So the question is, how does baptism convey this message? There's a lot of ways that people are baptized today, lots of variety in, in this experience. Some baptisms are baptisms by immersion, which means going all the way under the water. Others are baptized under the water three times. They call it a, a trine immersion, um, three times dunking under the water. Some people use aspersion, that's sprinkling of water. Um, some people have infusion, that's pouring. Um, they, they have uh, water poured over their head or something. And uh, I've heard of people um, being sprinkled with salt because Jesus says, you know, you're the salt of the earth. Um, there's others that have been uh, sprinkled with oil uh, as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Some are sprinkled with wine because wine is used in the communion service. Um, and uh, if you want to, you can even send five bucks in and get a, a mail-order baptismal certificate. You don't have to do a thing. I mean, there are lots of different ways that you could do this, um, but um, if God is trying to share a message through baptism and the symbol means something to him, do you think we should try to figure out what that symbol is so that we can do it the way God intended when you read the Bible, there's um, some pretty specific things about baptism, um, but not just about baptism, about any symbol. I think about Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel come to the, the sacrifice uh, with different stuff. Cain, he decides that, well, I mean, he doesn't have lambs. That's Abel's business. He, he has fruit, and so why shouldn't God accept the best of, of his harvest like he accepts the best of, of Abel's? So he, um, he takes his stuff and he puts it on the altar. And, and uh, does God say, well done, good and faithful servant? No. No, he says, he says, trying to do this your own way is the wrong idea. The lamb represents Jesus. That fruit and those vegetables, they don't represent anything except for your own work. You see the difference? When we come in with our man-made designer religion, we completely miss the point. God's symbols are specific. They mean something. Remember, the whole sanctuary had to be built according to God's plan because God's, system, God's symbols mean something to Him. Like, uh, think about the communion service. Um, in, the, in the Bible, the night Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and wine and He said, this is my body, this is my blood. It's, it's very specific. I mean, if you were to be like, um, you know what, let's do some spaghetti and some orange juice, would that mean the same thing? No, no, God intends for that to be pretty specific. You might remember the, the story of the soldier who went overseas to fight, and when he was away, he was worried that his girlfriend might have maybe fallen in love with somebody else. And so before he gets home, he writes her a letter and says um, that... Um, you know, the train goes right by your house. Um, I know I've, I've been away for a long, long time. Here's what I want you to do. If you still want me, tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree, as the song goes. 
And as the train approached the yard, he got kind of nervous, and he, he knew the old oak tree was coming up, and, um, and he, he wasn't sure if he should look because, you know, he didn't want to be disappointed. What if his girlfriend had read the letter and said, um, well, I, I'm, I don't want him anymore, right? He's, it's going to be empty, right? Now, what if she, she read the, the letter and said, well, that's, that's nice, but, um, you know, ribbon is expensive, and I've got this, this uh, little bit of, um, of old black rag instead, and and what if she said, well, that old oak, oak tree, you know, ladders are kind of, they're kind of dangerous. Maybe I'll just tie it on the fence instead. I mean, it's the thought that counts, right? What would have happened when that young man looked up from the train? He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have paid attention to some rag tied to the fence because that wasn't the sign that he had asked for her to give. But what actually happened? He looked up at that tree, and it was covered with yellow ribbons. If she had not paid attention to the sign, if she had done something different, then he wouldn't have noticed. He would never have gotten off that train because the message wouldn't have been there. Now, God's symbols always mean something. They're conveying a special message. And and baptism is supposed to show this death, burial, and resurrection And in order to do that, we need to do what Jesus did. Watch this back in Matthew 3. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. Or if you're reading the old King James, it says um, that Jesus went up straightway out of the water. In order to come up out of the water, you have to start by going down into the water. And, uh, and that's, that's really what baptism means. In fact, this is the only way the church ever knew to do it up until about 1200, 1300 AD, even the word, the Greek word baptizo means to immerse. It's the word that was used for the cloth dyeing industry. And if you've ever dyed cloth, you have to get it in the, the, the solution all the way if you want it to be completely dyed. Anything that you leave out is, gonna, is not going to have the complete dye in it. And so this is the, the idea. Um, there's a pastor that taught me to baptize one time, and he, he was a rather large man. And uh, so we were practicing, and I, I, I dunked him under the water, and, uh, and he got water in his nose. He was very, he was very nice. Um, he said, well, that wasn't quite right. Let's do it again. And I dunked him under again. And, and uh, when he came up, he says, you know what? I'm a big man. And sometimes, you know, we float a little better than, um, than most. You, you just got to push us under. <laughs> um, th- there's something about going under the water, into the grave is kind of the idea. Look at the story of John the Baptist in John 3, and you'll find that John was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. Why do they need a place with much water? Because he's putting them under the water when he baptizes them. Baptism means, in its very word, means going under the water. Look at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and you'll find the same thing. As they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, that's an important thought. We'll come back to a little bit later, that idea of I believe. Um, but there, there's, a, there's a couple prerequisites the Bible describes for baptism, but we'll come back to that in a minute. 
And then it says, so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. Why did they both go down into the water? Well, I'll just tell you from a little bit of experience, having baptized somebody in water, if you're not in the, in the water with them, then you drop them. <laughs> and if you're in a creek or a, a river and there's rocks at the bottom of that river, you, you don't want to drop somebody on the rocks. So you got to go down with them or it doesn't really work. And this is the only method the Christian church knew for a long, 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 long time. And in Galatians 3, 7, the Bible says, for as many of you has, have as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And there's something about baptism. It's a, it's a choice, a public display of an internal transformation that God's doing. Um, but it's, it's also a choice to join God's family. Paul talks about being a new, uh, uh, this new birth experience. You're kind of joining the family of God. And so he calls the, the people that he's baptized, my children. John says that, my little children. And then you've got um, uh, Paul talking about the Jesus is the vine. And whenever we're baptized, we are grafted into that vine and, and we bear fruit according to how Jesus describes it. When we're in Christ, we end up bearing fruit. But that baptism, we end up joining something. It's not just an isolated experience out there. Kind of like marriage. When you get married, you get in-laws. You, you join a family. And, and also, when you get married, it's something you do in a public context. You do it in front of witnesses um, because it's a covenant that you're making. And baptism is kind of like that as well. It's a, it's a covenant that you make with God that says, I want you to be mine. I want to be yours for the rest of my life. I'm going to die to what that was before, whatever my life was before, and I'm going to be a new creature in you. Now, um, let me ask you a question, ladies. Were you excited when your husband proposed? I mean, maybe some of you were just like, you know, it's the best I can do for now, but um, hopefully you were excited. But uh, how excited would you be if your husband said something like, well, look, honey, I'm just, I would love, I want to marry you, but can we just do it in secret? Because I I don't want any, any of my buddies to know. I don't want them to to be embarrassed. I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't want them to laugh at me. I don't want to be embarrassed. What would you think of that proposal? <laughs> no way. <laughs> if you don't want to take me in public, then you can't have me at all, right? Go away. You don't get married in secret, and you don't put on Christ in secret either. It's a public thing. It's something that you share as a testimony to others. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also, him I will confess also before my Father which is in heaven. When you become part of God's family, you tell the world about it, and you show them the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus through this, this symbol of baptism. But we've gotten confused a bit in recent centuries, and, and I kind of wonder why. Like, how did we get mixed up? You go to all these different churches, and they have all these different methods. Uh, where did we get that? How did we get there? Uh, we've uh, heard James Cardinal Gibbons before. He wrote this um, uh, crazy long series called Faith of Our Fathers about uh, Christian history, and he says this, 
For several centuries after the establishment of Christianity, baptism was usually conferred by immersion, but since the 12th century, the practice of baptism by infusion has prevailed, as this manner is attended with less inconvenience than baptism by immersion. And there's the truth. 1,100 years, and we baptized by immersion. But for a, the sake of convenience, we switched things up. Medieval Europe was not a warm place. They were going through in the 1300s a little bit of an ice age, and so people were dressing up in heavier robes and stuff, and the priests just, they just did not want to get into the water. And so for convenience, so they didn't have to get cold, they chose to do some, some pouring instead. But let's just do a quick look. What did the early church do? This is Ephesus, the first city um, that's uh, mentioned in the letters of, to the seven churches. And, uh, whoops, there it is. I don't have my picture of Ephesus. I thought I had a picture of Ephesus. Anyway, there's a, there was a picture of Ephesus. And in the middle of the church is this uh, big tub, right? Like there's a floor, and right in the middle of the floor is, is this baptismal font, and this particular mural is a 4th century African mural where in North Africa they're baptizing in, uh, you can see some kind of a, a, a body of water and the guy's up to his, his, um, his shoulders in water. Um, this one is the Lateran Palace and uh, the front of it, it's not that old. I mean, it's old, but not that old um, because it's been rebuilt and broken down and rebuilt several times. But this is around the back. And, and this is the old part of the, the Lateran Palace, and that's a baptismal tank. I mean, it looks like a bathtub, but it's big enough for a couple people to stand up in. So um, why would they need that in a church back in the 300s? Because they were baptizing by immersion. Um, and then there's this massive church in Istanbul, um, the Hagia Sophia, which is now an uh, Islamic mosque, but it, it used to be a Christian church. It was built by Emperor Justinian in the 6th century, the 500s. And, uh, and you see those, um, those dome-shaped things all around? Um, one of those has a, um, has a baptismal in it. Oh, I guess I don't have a picture of that, but one of those has a baptismal in it. Big tank, uh, not a tank, but a big um, like pool that uh, you could baptize several people in. And then this is the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which happens to be a bell tower to a, um, to a cathedral. And that is the baptisterium um, of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And guess what is in the baptisterium? A baptismal font, something that they could baptize people in. And this is, of course, from the 12th century. Now listen to the words of Cardinal Pullis. He wrote this in that same century uh, that this particular baptistry was built. The immersion of the candidate represents the death of Christ. While he is under the water, the burial of Christ is being represented. When he comes out of the water, the resurrection is represented. So we know in the 12th century, this is the 1100s, they were still practicing immersion. Um, and, and then you get towards the 14th century, that's the 1300 years after Christ, and a change starts to take place. This is Thomas Aquinas, the great doctor of the church. And he's describing this change, and uh, he seems a little bit nervous about it, to be honest. Baptism may be given not only by immersion, but also by a fusion of water or sprinkling with it. But it is the safe way to baptize by immersion, because that is the most common custom. 
just a little bit uncertain of himself, he sounds like. He recognizes that some people are using this new method, and he's like, oh, it's okay, but the official change came in 1311 at the Council of Ravenna. And, and this council said the, the official uh, baptismal is the sprinkling or pouring. Um, but that's 1,300 years after Jesus. And when Jesus said it, he said, go into all the world and baptizo, immerse people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there, there were some people that were starting to say, wait a second, what, what happened to these practices? And so by the, the 1500s, the 16th century, we have people like um, John Calvin and Martin Luther. This one's a quote from John Wesley a little bit uh, later on, and it says, I believe it is a duty to observe so far as I can to baptize by immersion. This one by John Calvin. The very word baptize, however, signifies to immerse, and it is certain that immersion was the practice of the ancient church. Martin Luther says, on this account, I could wish that such as are to be baptized should be completely immersed into the water, according to the meaning of the word and to the significance of the ordinance, as also, without a doubt, it was instituted by Christ. So, in the Bible, baptism was immersion, baptism by immersion. There's no doubt about that. And if Jesus did it, and if Jesus said we should do it, it seems like the right thing to do. It's the, according to Jesus, the righteous thing to do. Now, some people were christened as babies. Is that a bad thing? Well, if your parents, because they care about you, had you christened when you were a child, then that was super nice of them to do, right? Was it the right thing to do? Well, I would just say um, you can't judge them for having done it. Um, is it the kind of thing that God in, invites us to do? Well, we'll, we'll uh, it raises a few questions, I should say. Um, but uh, one of those, the, the, the thing that we need to look at is what is required for baptism? What is the, the prerequisites for baptism? And that'll help us to understand, is the christening thing something that we should be doing, or is there another, another way of doing that? Um, so the first thing that the Bible invites us to do is to repent. If you want to be baptized, repent. Um, Acts 2.38, Peter says it this way, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. If baptism symbolizes the death and burial and resurrection of this new believer, it only makes sense that you have to admit that you're a sinner before you do this. Um, when, when Constantine marched those soldiers through the river, we, we uh, looked at this idea, what do you get when you march a bunch of soldiers, a bunch of pagan soldiers through a river? Wet pagans. You, they're not baptized. They haven't made any decision. They just did what they were told, and they, they marched through a river. Baptism isn't a good luck charm. It's not, there's no magic going on. When you go underwater, you know, somebody says some incantation, and suddenly you're a different person. That's, that's not how it works. Uh, baptism is a, is, is a faith uh, lived out. It's a symbol that we choose to, to do because God asked us to. Um, but, but we have to start with, I recognize I'm a sinner, and I need to follow Jesus. Secondly, the Bible teaches us that we have to believe. Um, and we've already seen that in the story of the Ethiopian. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, and can I be baptized? And then in Acts 19, um, you find this. Paul says, 
John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to believe? Is, is belief just some, like, um, mental assent? I, I think there's something more to it, because the Bible describes those 144,000 that have the Father's name on their forehead. It says that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It's like the word here. In, uh, in the Hebrew, the, the word here is Shema. And if you are supposed to be, um, if God says to hear, like hear, O Israel, in, in uh, Deuteronomy 6, if God says to hear, what he's intending is that you don't just let it go into your eardrums, but you, you make your feet and your hands and your mouth follow what's, what you're, what's going into your eardrums, right? There, there's a, an action that comes from this. And that's what, what um, Paul is describing here that they should believe on him which should come after him. And, and when John's disciples see Jesus going down the road, and, they, and, and John says, look, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, you know what his disciples do? They believe, which makes their feet start moving. And they leave John, and they start following Jesus. That's what it means to believe. It's, a, it's an active thing. The Bible teaches us that we need to repent and that we need to believe on Jesus. And then the Bible says we need to understand what we're doing. I mean, maybe this isn't a step, you know, like step one, repent, step two, believe, step three, understand. Although understanding is part of the mix, um, John's disciples that went after Jesus, they did some question asking and, and Jesus did quite a bit of teaching over the next three and a half years. But these... Uh, this idea of understanding is, is kind of a, you have to understand in order to repent and in order to believe. And, and I think this is uh, kind of the reason why a minister like myself would like to sit down with a married couple before you, you marry them. You want them to actually know what they're getting themselves into. And you want to know if, if they know each other. I mean, if they don't know each other from Adam and they're just coming to you and saying, we want to be married, you'd be like, wait, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Let's, let's do a little bit of counseling first. And then uh, if you get to that point where, where the marriage vows are about to be said, what you want to make sure is that nobody's doing this because they feel like they have to. In fact, when my wife and I went to get married, uh, right before she walked through the doors and down that aisle, her dad, who had her arm in his already, turned to her and said, honey, are you sure you really want to be doing this? <laughs> you don't have to do this if you don't want to. And, and what he was doing is making sure that, that this was a choice that she was making, that she understood the consequences. This is one of the reasons we don't marry children, because they don't even have the mental capacity or the, the um, acuity in order to make a decision like this and to know what it means, that marriage vow. And so the same is, is kind of true uh, for the church. When we look at, uh, at baptism, do you, do you baptize somebody who is not able to repent, recognizing their sin and confessing it before God? Do you recognize somebody or do you, do you baptize somebody who's not able to understand even um, the, uh, the, the nature of baptism, what it means or who Jesus is or to, to, to verbalize belief in him? No, it doesn't seem like the right thing to do. In Acts chapter 2, baptism is the way that people join the church. It says that uh, that day when Peter preached his sermon and he said, 
um, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible says just a couple verses later that, um, that 3,000 people were added to the church that day when they were baptized. And it's, it's not just that, that, uh, that they checked them off on some roster and uh, said, oh, they're on the, in the church books or whatever. No, this was a, this was a family thing and, and a mission thing. When, when people were baptized into the church, they were baptized into the, they're drafted, you might say, into the mission of God's church to take the gospel to the world, to every nation, to every kindred, to every tribe, and to every tongue. And, and we all have a variety of things that we, you know, our uniqueness, our, our own talents, our own gifts, our own personalities. And God says, I want, I want that. There are people in this world that only you can touch through my spirit. I need you as part of my church. And it's, it's kind of important that you actually agree with the church that you're joining. Uh, there is a, a whole group of people that were baptized in Africa some time ago. Um, a nice, uh, nice lady, uh, one of these evangelists that preaches on TV, um, went over to Africa and, uh, and, and had a, um, a couple days of presentations, and, and some 10,000 people were baptized. Uh, but what we find after that baptism is that those 10,000 people, they have something called syncretism. Uh, they, they are like, they, they've been baptized, and so they call themselves Christians, but they're also doing all of their pagan practices that they were doing before. All of the, um, the worship practices that they had before, they, they continue to do the, um, the ceremonies and whatnot. They still, they just, they just call it Christian now. And that's not, really, that's not really where the Bible is going, right? There's something about belief not just belief in Jesus, but understanding His Word um, that's included in this idea of baptism. Uh, Matthew 28, Jesus describes it this way, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.'" Now, if that's all we had to do, we could stop there, but, but if we keep reading, we find that Jesus gives more information. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There is an educational component, a understanding of doctrine that's in this mix. And that's why for the last 2,000 years, um, we don't just baptize people. Um, we, we talk through the things with them and make sure that everybody who wants to be baptized understands what they're getting themselves into and, and says, yes, I want Jesus, and yes, I want to be part of his movement, of his church, of his mission. So there you have it, the three steps, repent, believe, understand. Can a baby do these things? No. And not that, that uh, babies are sinless, but does a baby need to repent of crying when it needs its diaper changed? No. No. Does a baby need to, to repent of scratching its mom or biting its mom? No, although the mom might feel like it needs some repentance, right? No, the, the baby is just doing what the baby does. The, and and uh, some people, well, the question would have to come like, why do we baptize babies then? Why do we do this? And, and the answer is that um, a while back, uh, during the medieval period, the church started baptizing babies because they, they taught that God would reject the baby if it hadn't been baptized. 
And, and there's some critical things in understanding how the church was operating at the time to understand why that doctrine came up, and we're not going to get into it, but the, um, that teaching made people want to baptize their babies as soon as they were born, especially since some half, like 50% of the babies that were born were dying before they were um, two or three years old. You want to make sure that your baby is, born, um, is baptized early on. But I think that that completely ignores the fact that Jesus says that children are part of God's kingdom. It just seems like the default here is that God loves children. And for for God to just be like, oh, you didn't get baptized, you know, so long for you, that just doesn't seem like it jives with the kind of character that God describes in the Bible. And, and so what, what is, uh, I mean, if you want to do something for your babies, if you want to do something for your children, what should you do? Well, Jesus was dedicated. This is what the Jews did. Um, when uh, he was eight days old, he came to the temple and uh, he was dedicated to God. And, and there's a little ritual, a little ceremony that the Bible describes for this. And uh, they brought two turtle doves and there was a, a blessing that was performed by the priest. And and then there's some cool things that happened around Jesus uh, when that happened. But, but there's something about this, this experience where it says, this baby, Lord, is yours, and we're going to dedicate our lives to raising this baby to follow you. And, and then if there's a church involved, the church gets to say, we're going to help you with that. We're going to be a community surrounding you to help that, that child grow up and to love Jesus too. And so I think it's not so much that we should baptize babies because Jesus is going um, to send them to hell if they're not baptized. Um, it's that we should dedicate babies because we want Jesus to be the center of their lives. And then when they choose to follow Jesus, when they choose to say yes to him, then they can be baptized as well. Now, another question is, is it ever appropriate to be baptized again a second time? And the Bible does give a few instances where there's a second baptism. Like um, in Acts 19, um, it says, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. And you've got to recognize Apollos was an evangelist, uh, a Jewish evangelist, and he didn't know Jesus yet. And so Apollos was in Corinth. Um, Paul, having passed through the upper regions, comes to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we haven't even heard um, whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into, when, into what were you baptized? And so they said, into John's baptism. So Apollos is a convert of John. He's repented and is baptizing like John did. And, and Paul comes and he says, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe in him who uh, would come after them, that is on Christ Jesus. Now, did these people have a valid baptism? Absolutely. They weren't sprinkled or poured or salted or whatever. <laughs> they, they had a valid baptism, but um, they, had, they, they began to learn new truth. Now that, that Paul was with them, he was teaching them about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and uh, it says when they heard this, they were baptized in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so it's, there is a legitimate time to be rebaptized, and it's usually either after a period of, um, of rebellion against God, and you say, I want to come back, I want to re- uh, renew that relationship with God, or after you have learned a significant new truth, like the Ethiopian, who was likely baptized as a Jew, because Jewish converts were also baptized. 
Um, he was likely baptized as a Jew, but now he's studying this prophecies of Isaiah. And when Philip comes to him and teaches him about Jesus and shows him how Jesus fulfills all these prophecies, he says, I believe in Jesus Christ. And that's a big deal. And so because of that new information, that new knowledge, he says, I want to be baptized again. So yeah, the Bible, it, it does say rebaptism is appropriate and under certain circumstances. If you've never been baptized or if you've been baptized in a way that the Bible doesn't describe, um, then that's a good reason to be baptized too, though. And every time, every time when you think about this, this idea of baptism, think about the idea of, of a, a new life, a new slate. If you've been baptized, um, you don't have to be rebaptized to have a new slate. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? They're sitting around the table. Well, there wasn't a table. They're sitting around the room, um, in the upper room, and, uh, and, and he comes around washing feet. And Peter says, no, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have any part of, of, of me. And Peter says, then wash my whole body, baptize me, is basically what he's saying. And Jesus said, laughed, I'm sure, and said, no, no, you've already had a bath. You're clean. You just need your feet washed. And I think that that experience is something that can remind us, if you've already been baptized, then God invites us to do a, a simple ceremony with each other called a foot washing, and it just illustrates a little baptism, you might say, but we don't need to be baptized over and over and over again. When we're born into Christ, then we're new creatures, and we stay Christ's until, unless we reject Him completely. He's not going to He's not going to refuse us if we reject him, just like he didn't refuse Lucifer in heaven when Lucifer rejected him. But he, he, won't, he won't just kick us out and have us be rebaptized every other week. That doesn't work. The hospital was unusually quiet when Susan um, looked at her clock. It was nine o'clock. She put her stethoscope around her, her neck and she went down to room 712, the last room on the hall, where Mr. Williams was. And Mr. Williams had been admitted um, with uh, a mild heart attack the night before, and um, he hadn't had any visitors, no family, nobody had come. She checked his vitals and looked around, and, and uh, he was okay, everything was fine, but uh, he said, nurse, would, would you mind, and, and tears started to fill his eyes as he looked at her, he said, would you mind calling my daughter? And she said, sure, I'll call, him, call her in the morning. And he said, no, no, call her, call her now. I want her to know that I've had a heart attack and tell her, make sure she knows that it was a mild one and I'm okay, but, but um, she's my only family and we've been estranged for some time. So she said, of course, I'll call. And uh, as she was leaving the room, he said, do you have a pen and a, and a piece of paper? And uh, so she rummaged around in her pockets and she found a pen and she found a little scrap of a notepad, a yellow um, legal pad and, and uh, handed it to him, put it on her, his bedside table, and she left the room and went through his charts and found that the next of kin was listed and his daughter's phone number was there, so she called. And the, the daughter picked up the phone and, and uh, she, she said hello, and so the, the nurse told her her name, I'm Susan Kidd, and I'm at this hospital and your dad was admitted with a mild heart attack. Um, she described it, and, and um, the daughter, Janie, she, she was like, oh no, is he okay? Is he dying? 
And the lady's like, no, 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 he's, he's okay. He's stable right now. Um, and, and Janie said, I, I'm, I'm sure it's not visiting hours, but I have to come right now. And the nurse said that was okay. And so Janie got in the car and, and started that way. And before she, before she hung up the phone, she says, don't let him die. You can't let him die. And uh, Janie, uh, Susan had assured Janie that he was okay, but, but Janie said, no, no, you don't understand. We've, the last time I saw him was over a year ago. It was on my 21st birthday, and, and we had had this big argument about my boyfriend, and I had told my dad, the last words I said to him is, I, I hate you, and I, I can't have that be the last thing that I say to my dad. Well, she, she hopped in the car, came quickly to the hospital, and uh, when Susan hung up the phone, she went back to her paperwork, but she couldn't get Mr. Williams out of her mind, and so she, uh, she walked down the hall again to check on him. And, uh, and this time, he didn't, he didn't move when she came through the door, and she checked his pulse, and it was, it was flat. He, he was gone. She tried to revive him. There was nothing that, that they could do. And so right about the time that Susan was coming out of room 712, Janie was coming down the hall. And Susan had to say, I'm so sorry. There was nothing else we could do. I'm sure he loved you. And Janie slumped into the chair and started bawling and crying and say, and, and she said, I, I never hated him, you know, I never hated him. I wanted to see him, she said. Well, Susan led her down the, the hall to room 712. And before she opened the door, uh, Susan put her hand on Janie's shoulder just, just to make sure, are you sure this is what you, you want to see? And, and she went, opened the door and went in. And she put, her, she put her head into the sheets and cried and hugged her, her, her father's body. And then that's when Janie saw on the bedside table was a scrap of yellow paper. And she picked it up and it said, My dearest Janie, I forgive you. I know that you love me and I love you too. Daddy. We live in a sinful world, a world that's dying fast. There's not a lot of time. And tonight I have a note for you from your Heavenly Father. And that note says, I love you, I forgive you, and we can start over right now. It's a yellow scrap of paper, a yellow ribbon, it's a cross. Planted in time, it's a river that runs through the entire story of the Bible. And it can be yours, not sometime in the future. But right now, that river of life can be yours. I'd like to ask the, the ushers to come forward, and they're going to pass out a little card. And I've done this a couple times. I don't have mine in front of me, but um, there's a... Put it on the screen, so... The first line on this card, it's something simple. Um, and again, you don't have to fill one of these things out. It's helpful for me um, when I, um, I pray for you guys, but also um, it is a good thing when you say, I've been learning things from the Bible. I want to take a step in, in, of faith and, and follow that. The first line 
is something everybody can say yes to, I think. You've been, been with me for a while, and, and I'm pretty confident that everybody here could say this. I surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Now, if you've said this before, that's okay. Um, Paul says, I die daily. I surrender myself to Christ daily, and that's something we can do every day. So, I surrender my life fully to Christ. Um, the second line says, I want to be baptized by immersion the way Jesus was. If you've never been baptized before, this is a good opportunity to check that box and say, I'd like to, I'd like to follow Jesus. If you believe that He died and was buried and was resurrected for you, if you believe that He's carried your sins, then that's a good thing to say. Again, you, there's no pressure. You don't have to. I'm not trying to twist your arm. I'm just sharing the Bible with you. Uh, so I'll leave that in your conscience. And then there's uh, the, the third one. It says, I've been baptized, but have questions about rebaptism. And if for some reason you feel like rebaptism would be if appropriate, whether you're baptized in a different way than the Bible describes, or if you were baptized and you've uh, fallen away from God in the meantime, and you'd like to consider being rebaptized, then check that box, and we'll have a conversation about that in the, in the next few days. Or maybe you just need prayer. There's a problem in your life, there's a challenge that you're facing, and you just need me to pray for something. That's fine too. If you just check that box, I'll make sure and, and, and pray for you by name. And if, uh, you know, we've been studying for a bit, and if you want a personal visit, whether to ask a question about baptism or any other subject, I'd be happy to, to come by and visit you. Just put that, uh, uh, check that box, I'd like a visit in person. And uh, if you could jot your name down, if you've given us your contact information before, then you don't have to put all that detail down. But at least put your name on the card. And, uh, and if I could have the ushers come back forward and pick those up. They'll be back in a minute. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's have the ushers pick those up. Thank you for filling out this card. Um, when, when you are studying the Bible all by yourself, you're not doing this kind of thing. But, but in this context, it's definitely helpful for me to understand like where you are. And number one, do you understand what we're talking about? And number two, is this something that you'd like to follow in your life too? And uh, so that's just helpful for me. And whatever it is tonight, if you've said, I want to be uh, baptized, or if you said, I, I want something, you know, something special to be prayed for, um, now is a, a, an opportunity uh, for us to, to s together approach God in prayer and to invite, um, invite God into those aspects of our lives, whether it's a commitment to Christ or a need that you have. And I'm just going to step down and invite you if you want to. Um, you don't have to, but if you want to, you can come down with me and, and uh, we can pray together and have that, uh, lift those things up to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, each of us here are saying we want you to be the Lord of our lives. And there's 
various things in our lives that are challenges or problems that we might have, things that are maybe a decision that we're making that's difficult for us to figure out the answer to. Um, we need your wisdom, Lord. Maybe it's a uh, understanding of a piece of your, of your word or a lot of your word. Just try to figure it out. We need your spirit, Lord, to guide us. Uh, maybe it's some relationship problem, a challenge that we're not sure how to face, and every time we keep uh, bumping into it, it's, uh, it, it causes more bruises than uh, solutions. And uh, I just pray that you would give us uh, the resources and the wisdom to know how to relate to the people that are dearest to us in our lives. And uh, maybe it's some other issue, a financial concern, a child that's, um, that, that's going down a wrong path. We don't know, I don't know all of the details here, but Lord, we're, we're here to lift these things up to you and to say, our lives are yours and we want you to be our leader. We want you to help solve those problems and to do what you said that you would do uh, when you said that you would be our father. We need your help, Father. And we, we want our lives to be yours. And Lord, I want to surrender these people, uh, whether they're standing up or not, into your hands. Uh, please guide us in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.